0: Right. uh, Good evening, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this discussion on trading across the globe, an analysis of the political economy of China and Europe. My name is uh, Simon Glendinning, and I'm head of the European Institute here at the LSE. Tonight's event marks the official launch of a new double master's degree between the European Institute at LSE and the Institute for Global Public Policy at Fudan University, Shanghai. It's the MSC, Global Political Economy of China and Europe. It's a two-year degree. The first year is taken here in London, where the focus is primarily on issues in political economy, and the second year in Shanghai, where the focus is primarily on public policy. And now we have our first cohort of students. They've begun their studies. It's week three, I think. Twenty students, four of them from China, 14 from various countries in Europe, one from Canada, one from South Korea. Now, that degree with 20 students coming in its first year is pretty extraordinary. It had a, a target of 15, and very often it takes a few years for a new degree to warm up and build up towards its target, but overshooting it by five in its first year is excellent. And it's wonderful to have seen and met the students in London this year who are taking this course. Their interest and enthusiasm for the degree is great. And on behalf of the European Institute, I'm delighted to welcome our new students to this degree and delighted to at the opportunity for this new collaboration between London and Shanghai and the opportunity it gives both cities and to both educational institutions. These institutions, they're not so old compared to some universities, but they're not young either. One was founded in 1895 in London, and the other in 1905 in Shanghai. Two institutions in two of the world's great trading ports two institutions which bring their cosmopolitan history and their cosmopolitan ethos to bear in the very fabric of their being and now join forces in this new programme. European Studies, which is our side of these things, was historically content, it seems to me anyway, to to leave the rest of the world to one side when it studied Europe. Well, that never made good sense, and today it makes less sense than ever. So we welcome this new degree and look forward to an academic partnership that can help us understand better a world that, frankly, does not make much sense to any of us. So as we launch this new partnership, I'm happy now to make way to those present from both institutions and elsewhere to help us all, in the words of the philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch, to take steps onward, outward, and into the dark. And here I hand over to our chair tonight, Professor Paul de Grau. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. Um, I join Simon in um, saying that uh, I'm extremely happy and, and also proud to be able to chair this meeting uh, which uh, is done in the context of this new program that is full of promise and uh, the contacts that I've had with the students and seeing the enthusiasm for this uh, program convinces me that uh, this uh, is going to be quite successful. Um, One of the most uh, spectacular things that have happened in, in the last 40 years is the rise of China who would have said or told 40 years ago that China now would be the biggest economic power in the world because that's what it is if you take the right exchange rates, that is the purchasing power parity exchange rates, then China is the biggest economy in the world, has surpassed the United States. And it's continuing to move further given that its growth rate exceeds by far the growth rate of the U.S. So here we have um, something very new, the economic power, which also leads to political power, is there to stay and will change the nature of our relationships. And and, and today also we we observe that the U.S. is retrenching in protectionism while China is opening up, and that creates for Europe the choice, what, what to do? Where are we going to team up with? Right? Will we continue to have privileged relationships with the US? Or are we going to shift to the new superpower, which is China? So these are basically the, the type of topics that we will have to discuss tonight, and I'm very pleased to be able to introduce this panel of of scholars that have worked on different dimensions of trade, international trade, political economy of trade, and and, um, the the way we will proceed then is that each of um, the panel members will give an introduction of five to seven minutes. I know that the credibility of seven minutes is limited, right, Um, but I will try to enforce some rules here. and, and so our first speaker, then, I will use the alphabetical order, will be Dr. Robert Besdom, who is an assistant professor in international political economy at the LSE, the European Institute. So we are colleagues. In fact, we, we share, we, we are um, next to each other. And so we, we see each other almost every day. Um, before joining LSE, uh, Robert was an official at the OECD in Paris, and he also worked as a consultant for the European institutions, the German government, and was a Max Weber postdoctoral fellow at the European University Institute in Florence. Our uh, next speaker will then be Professor Dr. Ding Chung, um, who is a professor in economics holding a Jean Monnet chair in, in, in China, Volfair. He is also director of the Center for European Studies uh, at Fudan University. He is vice president of the Chinese Association of European Studies and secretary general of Chinese Society of EU Studies. He was a member of the Global Agenda Council of Europe of the World Economic Forum. His teaching and research activities focuses on European integration and social economic affairs in the EU. He has published more than 140 relevant articles and works in Chinese, English, and German. Then um, our next speaker will be Dr. Yu Ji, who is senior, Senior Research Fellow on China at Chatham House and Associate Fellow at LSE Ideas. She focuses on the decision-making process of Chinese foreign policy as well as Chinese economic diplomacy. She regularly briefs senior policy practitioners from the G7 member governments, the UK Cabinet Office, which is a difficult job, isn't it? Uh, And the Silk Road Fund in Beijing, as well as major FTSE 100 corporates. That's really serious, right? Dr. Yu has been recognized as a leading woman of the London School of Economics for her contribution in teaching and in engaging the public debates on China's foreign affairs. And then we have Dr. Thomas Sampson, who is Associate Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics, or so in the Department of Economics. His research studies the impact of globalization on workers, firms, and productivity. Thomas is also an academic advisor to the Bank of England, an associate at the Center for Economic Performance, where he has worked extensively on the economic consequences of Brexit. Does does this suggest that he will get questions about Brexit? I would propose you don't do that tonight. (laughs) Prior to joining the London School of Economics, Thomas worked as an Overseas Development Institute Fellow at the Bank of Papua New Guinea, and he obtained a PhD in Economics from Harvard University. So I'm very pleased now to be able to start off this uh, panel discussion, discussion, and I give the floor to Robert first.
2: Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, Good evening, everybody. Um, When I was invited to this talk, um, I was told – so first of all, thank you very much for for the invitation. I was told I have five minutes to tell, uh, tell us a story about trade in China and Europe. So I tried to come up with a good story about China, trade, and Europe, and I thought the hot issue uh, we are all thinking about today is actually the U.S.-China trade war, right? So I want to talk about this and the implications for Europe and the U.K. What is actually coming for Europe and the U.K. in this context? So first a couple of words on the trade war and how I see it, and I think many people in the trade crowd see it, but I may be corrected if you disagree with me. I believe we are not really looking at a trade war in the traditional sense that it's an economics this agreement, that there's a dispute over certain trade policy choices of the countries. In reality, I think we are facing a geopolitical conflict between the U.S. and China. Um, The U.S. essentially, I think, has come to the conclusion that it must delay, to some extent, China's ascent as a global leading power, and that's why it's doing what it's doing. And to understand a little bit the context, the U.S. was very uh, helpful when it was about basically opening up China, integrating China into the world community, And it had this idea that by basically integrating China into the world trade regime, China would become a bit more like us, a democracy, a capitalist economy. Over the last couple of years, however, Obama and also Trump, they have realized that's not actually the case. In contrast, actually, China is more a competitor, a challenger to Western and U.S. power. And therefore, this trade war is basically now going on. And the implication of that is that this trade war will not be settled by some small deal in the next couple of weeks, as we may believe when we read the Financial Times. This trade war is, I believe, here to stay for the next couple of years and decades, really. So what are the implications of all of that for Europe and the UK? And I think there are three major challenges which we should look out for as Europeans and British residents or citizens. The first one is actually what the IMF told us yesterday and the last couple of weeks as well, that this trade war is putting significant uh, pressure on global growth and we know that in Europe, we have a lot of fragile economies, but also Germany is very exposed to China, for instance, so in the Eurozone and in Europe, we will see probably somewhat a recession, I would assume, and we know that the incoming commission wants to reform Europe. Reforms are very difficult if the pie is shrinking, so I think we are actually headed for quite some trouble in European politics in that sense. For the UK, obviously, that's also bad news because Brexit already put a lot of pressure on the British economy if we have a global downturn, This is not going to help the UK. The second challenge, I would argue, is that this trade war is clearly not aligned with world trade law and the rules of the World Trade Organization. So we have a weakening of the World Trade Organization. That is bad for Europe because Europe is a technocratic and highly legalistic actor in world politics and also in world trade, so it's very much used to negotiating on the basis of law If we have now negotiations based on geopolitics, I believe that's more difficult for the commission to deal with. The greater repercussions of the weakening of the WTO, however, on the UK side, the UK uh, will leave the European Union, Brexit, right? So it will be extremely reliant on WTO law, on the WTO well-functioning. Also, it does not have any FTAs in uh, basically concluded. It just rolled over some 15 FTAs with other countries. So if the WTO is weakened and we go into a global downturn economically and the UK doesn't have any FTAs, that means the UK is extremely vulnerable to to economic shocks, I would say. Now, the third challenge, and that one is a bit of perhaps not that concrete to think about first, is a destabilization of the Middle East, I believe. You have to be aware that uh, the U.S. imported for many decades a lot of its energy from the Middle East and therefore developed a very strong geopolitical presence in this region. Now, because of shale gas, shale oil, uh, the U.S. has become very much independent of Middle Eastern uh, energy. However, China has become extremely dependent. Almost half of its energy comes from the Middle East. However, in this particular region, it's really the Americans who at least for the moment being, it's changing by the hour, right, Uh, have been the leading actor there. So you could easily imagine that the US uses its preeminent role in the Middle East to put pressure on China, which then means you may see some more chaos in the Middle East and therefore some security and migration externalities for Europe. And we know that this has been very difficult over the last couple of years already, right? So what are the opportunities of this whole situation? First of all, um, the clear-cut opportunity for the EU and the the UK is that they could present themselves as an alternative to the US economy. As the US economy is closing down to some extent for Chinese companies, also closing down the financial markets for for Chinese uh, firms, uh, the Europeans and the British could say, well, you know, Chinese firms come over here, invest here, we are happy to have you over. I think for the the Europeans, that's a credible uh, scenario. I don't believe really that's a credible opportunity for the UK. The UK, after Brexit, will be very eager to have a very close relationship with Washington, and I don't really see that Americans are pushing for this costly policy vis-a-vis China, and then essentially allow the UK to free-ride and to cash in on this situation by basically grabbing the market share which the US had from, uh, from, from the yeah, – well, just as, uh, taking on this market share of the US, basically. Now. Um, A second opportunity, clearly, for Europe and the UK is to mediate then between the US and China to play the middleman role. I think the EU could do it eventually, but right now with Mr. Trump, I think uh, no need for mediation, no interest in mediation. Also, if you look at the UK, I mean, the UK is so closely aligned with Washington right now, I don't think they could credibly mediate also because they are such a small economy, really, or such a small player uh, on their own. So to conclude... I think this trade war is more about geopolitics. It will stay around for quite some time. There are a lot of challenges for Europeans and British, uh, also some upsides, I would argue. And I think in order to prepare the world for what is coming, what can Europeans and British now do is to invest a lot into reforming the World Trade Organization and generally rules-based global economic governance as far as they can. Uh, I cannot go into detail here, but at least make the current system as robust as you basically can so that if there's a real crunch moment in the next couple of years, the system can survive it, basically. So thank you very much, and uh, I hope that that's good.
3: Yeah. Thank you very much, and also I'm very honored uh, to be here to participate uh, this actually uh, dialogue about the bilateral relationship between uh, EU and China, and I will use uh, PowerPoint to uh, give my presentation. Actually, my point was focused more on three uh, points. The first, the status quo of uh, EU-China relationship. Second, uh, the concerns from both sides, and third, uh, my predication about perspective of uh, EU-China economic relationship. Oh, sorry, the help slide, yeah. um, please. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. So uh, very brief uh, about the status quo of uh, EU-China economic relationship. As we all know that both sides are most important trade and investment partner to both sides. Here China is EU's second largest trade partner, while EU is uh, China's largest trade partner. And when we uh, have a look at uh, the items of trade in goods, that's in uh, these fields, uh, China has relative uh, surplus. And when we have a look at the trading service, that's uh, EU has relative increasing uh, surplus with time. And when we have a look of the trade structure, that's more with a characteristic of the so-called intra-industry trade. And if we have a look of a trade share, that's uh, actually the big three. That means uh, uh, Germany, France, uh, UK. Maybe also includes uh, Netherlands uh, based its uh, Notre Dame effects account, about, uh, account for about 65% of total volume. And then we will uh, have a look of investment. Chinese uh, uh, investment into EU was uh, increasing recently very uh, significantly, yeah, especially if from 2012 And after 2016, it's a, sta- uh, a bit uh, stagnated. And uh, when we have a look of EU's outward FDI. Uh, towards China it's keep uh, very steadily level and also the motivation for Chinese investment into uh, European continent or to Europe uh, that's quite clear that's uh, focused more on the strategic assets and also automobile manufacturing or these kind of uh, things. And uh, today's topic is focused more on this trade war. actually. In my eyes, it's not only the trade conflict or trade war, like colleagues has already mentioned, between US and China. Here I also listed the timeline uh, between the trade conflicts uh, between US and uh, uh, EU. We all know that uh, Donald Trump has also imposed this tariff, not only uh, to Chinese products, but also in uh, European uh, products. And then I switch more to these concerns from both sides. Yeah, from Chinese side, uh, the concepts are focused more on trade uh, friction, especially the solution of uh, uh, EU uh, uh, based on this trade friction, more uh, like this anti-dumping, anti subsidy which actually, when we're talking about the total share of anti-dumping and anti subsidy investigation and sanctions to, uh, towards China, it's account about uh, half of the total uh, anti-dumping and anti subsidy uh, case. And also uh, complaints are uh, to uh, the EU's investment schooling, especially in recent years, that's not at the national level, both at the EU level. And also uh, EU's uh, uh, position of Chinese role uh, more as uh, economic competitor as well as systematic rival uh, under the framework of its uh, China's paper, uh, Strategic Outlook. From uh, Europeans' concerns, let's focus more on the market access, Uh, IPR protections, forced technology transfer, as well as SOEs and also level uh, level playing. And then uh, some words about the prospects of EU-China cooperation. Actually, I was relatively optimistic about prospects of a bilateral economic tie between EU and China. So the arguments which I uh, support these kind of uh, predication is, number one, uh, between China and EU, we do not have these uh, fundamental geopolitical strategic conflicts. Second, uh, both sides, I mean China and EU, are si- insist on these uh, ch- uh, free trade um, uh, multilateralism and, and also uh, climate change, uh, economic globalization. And third, uh, EU-China economic relations is the anchor of uh, EU-China uh, relations. Yeah, when We're talking about the dimension, different dimension of uh, EU-China relations. And also, we have already an uh, existing uh, mute, uh, mature me- uh, mechanism to settle these kind of disputes. Yeah? Uh, more than 50 uh, mechanisms for settlement of these kind of uh, trade disputes was, uh, exist, uh, includes that we all know that uh, the negotiation of uh, a bilateral investment treaty was just ongoing, and as far as I know that uh, last, uh, next year, we will, yeah, when it's lucky, we will sign these uh, BIT for both sides. And last but not least is the Chinese uh, efforts to uh, actually keep up uh, opening up and reform to outside world. And uh, actually the concrete progress has already made so, just some of these uh, cases, we all know that uh, the Davos speech by Chinese President Xi Jinping, which is uh, in favor of uh, 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 free trade, uh, keep opening up to the outside world, and also world economic uh, uh, globalization. And here, I also want to raise this uh, FTZ as a case. Uh, we all know that uh, since uh, 2015, we have the first pilot free trade zone. Uh, which actually establishment, uh, established in Shanghai and then expanded to uh, almost 18 provinces. That, uh, get uh, the, Actually the target for this FTZ is to measure the gap which the outside uh, request to Chinese uh, economy and the status quo of Chinese level. So one of the significant progress we have achieved is the always shortening uh, negative list. So here you can see from the table that the, sh- uh, the uh, sh- uh, shortening negative lists was quite significant, and also the listed uh, sectors, including manufacturing, transportation and the others, was withdrawn from these negative lists, which means that we have more free hand to this uh, uh, market access for foreign investors. And also, when we're talking about the legal framework, we could also uh, have a look of this new issued new foreign investment law, which allowed the foreign investor to, to invest in Chinese uh, uh, in Chinese enterprises uh, solely, and it's forbidden to uh, make these uh, forced technology transfer. And we also uh, observed that the uh, further openness of uh, financial markets. We honor that Chinese side scripts, uh, qualified financial <coughs> institutional investor as well as RMB QV. Uh, and also in recent uh, days we have more uh, Yeah, actually the openness of the financial markets to outside world when we have a look of the deal uh, between China and uh, US. And about IPRs, uh, here I think that uh, Uh, legally we have improved quite a lot and also in uh, the implementation of these kind of things we have made quite progress and uh, we have quite a lot of cooperation between US, China, uh, EU, China and actually nowadays the demand for more protection of IPR is not only under the pressure from outside, but also uh, domestic demand because more and more Chinese enterprises like Huawei has invest, invest so many uh, IND uh, and uh, actually that's uh, internal demand because nowadays if we look, have a look at the uh, investment uh, IND intensity, it's almost 219 so uh, last, actually, I will say that uh, people are always talking about uh, the market access. So here, that's actually from the report uh, which issued by World Bank Group uh, doing business in China. Actually, that's this year, which just show the rank of the uh, business environment in China was actually improved quite a lot, especially <coughs> if you compare the, the rank uh, of China Uh, in year 2017 and 2018, that's quite clear, from rank uh, 78 to uh, to 46. Last but not least, I will mention also this uh, pattern road initiative. Uh, Actually, uh, we have a quite multi-layer cooperation with EU in the fields of uh, pattern road initiative. Uh, from the EU-China supranational level, we have already established this EU-China co- uh, connectivity platform. Uh, we have this AIB, which actually we have 17 EU member states. And also China was allowed to participate to this EBRD uh, together with uh, uh, the uh, grant uh, and also make construction for this Belt and Road Initiative. And also last month, uh, actually in Brussels, we have this uh, uh, forum which organized by commission about this uh, uh, Euro-Asia connectivity strategy. And for me, I think there is a potential op- opportunity uh, to synergy these two, I mean, uh, Belt and Road Initiative and also EU's uh, Euro-Asia connectivity strategy. And when people have a look, of uh, the national level cooperation between China and EU, so totally eighteen European countries were participating to this better and initiative with different kinds of uh, forms. So here I just listed these in the uh, table, and as a case, I think maybe the China Express Railway is the significant uh, progress we, which we have. Yeah? So uh, nowadays, totally 15 European countries was involved into this. And uh, uh, actually, total amount for these kind of shuttles is uh, account for uh, 11,000. And also not only these uh, uh, express uh, railway, but also the construction of infrastructure like porters. So here, the uh, Greek Paris Port is uh, uh, actually it's a case. So uh, as a conclusion, I would say, first, Sino-EU economic relations are the most anchor of Sino-EU relations. Second, China and Europe should resolve their disputes through cooperation instead of confrontation. Uh, last but not least, as China continues its reform and opening up, China-EU economic relations should have optimistic uh, perspective. Yeah, so that's actually my input uh, for this dialog. Thank you very much.
4: Good evening ladies and gentlemen and um, boys and girls. I'm delighted to return to LSE. I don't remember how many times I stood in here and give lectures, so I'm delighted to come back again, and thank you so much for European Institute for hosting me tonight. And I remember 12 years ago when I was doing my Master um, for International Relations in here, and there was one model, so-called Europe and the World, and it was a very limited discussion about China completely. But nowadays, we seem to have a joint degree set up, so I'm really delighted to see the progress we've made so far. Now, if we are talking about... About EU-China relations, perhaps is probably one of the most important bilateral economic partnerships in international affairs nowadays. I mean, with the ongoing Brexit negotiation process, and also regarding what's happening with U.S.-China trade war, and of course China will have to inevitably adjusting the European its relations with European Union. So what kind of relations do we really have? The question is really not answerable for this very moment because everything's all very fluid. But so far, I think European Union doesn't really interested in get into this geostrategic competition between Beijing and Washington. Partially is because within Asia, European Union has a very little geopolitical interest within in, in Asia Pacific. But secondly, I think also European Union somehow despite they share the similar concern regarding China's non-market economy practice on um, market access, on um, state-owned enterprises subsidies. But nevertheless, European Union still consider China being a major economic powerhouse and somehow would help the European Union economic growth at the same time. So having said all that, but the most important factor so far we would have would be the news from Washington. I mean, in the, in the recent months, I would say, the European Union's the member states bearing on enormous pressure from the United States regarding the discussion on the utility of the 5G network, and also on the other hand, um, European Union facing an internal governance issue. I mean, I noticed there was in March there was a European Commission paper to describe about China as being systematic revel, but on the other hand, I don't see it really as a, as a China threat or such. I consider this as almost like an internal governance issue of European Union, EU 20, uh, 28, so now it's going to be 27. So exactly whether European Union, no. Um, so whoever sitting in Lisbon regarding China, would they be holding a similar view for those who are sitting in Berlin regarding China? And clearly the answer is no, and obviously Brussels is are not able to satisfy all the needs and wants of the member states on this subject. But given all that noise, I think the Chinese government has changed very little regarding its um, its stance towards the European Union. And obviously President Xi uh, visited Europe twice um, in the last 12 months. Um, First thing China wants from Europe very clear China would like to have the European Union being a secure and stable home to provide an um, investment destination for the Chinese investors, both the state-owned enterprises, but also for the private enterprises as well. And secondly, given this ongoing bruising trade war between China and the United States and also China's economic slowdown, and of course China would need more economic alliances as many as possible within the international space, and also for those economic alliances which actually practice the international rule-based trade. So European Union, again, being a champion of that sense of economic globalization. And I don't really see the two sides why we would not be able to cooperate with each other. And lastly, but not least, China is an emerging economy, and it still considers itself somehow want to be endorsed by the, emer- by the developed economies. So, what happened was Italy somehow signed up the initiative, the Belt and Road Initiative, clearly raised the eyebrows in Berlin and in Brussels. But that's really what China is looking for, looking for to have as many developed countries as possible in order to follow that the Belt and Road Initiative. Professor Ding just offered those details over there. Um, so, having said all that, but how European Union is going to really respond the so-called China challenge or the challenge from a regime which is so different? from what somehow this part of the world cherished, you know, that sense of multi party democracy, whilst on the other hand, who are dealing with a, a, a country with one party rule. There's no clear answer for that. And I think it's also to do with the Chinese economy and Chinese companies themselves nowadays not just become the mere pupil of European companies, to learn from the European countries and European companies, but also somehow become a very formidable competitors of the European companies and the European member states. So if we're talking about Made in China 2025, many European policymakers, what will come in their mind is the European Union's very own industrial, um, forced industrial revolution. So that sense of competition is ongoing and that's at economic level. So the economic level of competition has somehow turned into a political resentment, a political sense of xenophobia even. Um, if you hear the discussion in Berlin, clearly the discussion would be very different, that sense of China affair. Why? Because the European Union, by no way, they would actually acknowledge that the Chinese Communist Party would be able to run a 1.4, million, uh, sorry, 1.4 billion population state, firstly. And secondly, the European Union, of course, always cherished the whole ideas of democracy and liberty. And in the past, back to 2005, when the European Union tried to integrate it into formal Eastern blocs and what they have done, they have introduced economic reform and they have also introduced the political reform. So they're hoping one day and China will be like them as well, by introducing that political reform at the same time. But of course, given where we are now, by no way China is going to believe what European you know in terms of the normative values and that sense of normative values will really be, continues to divide the two economic partners and perhaps I would be considering that will become a major um, hindrance, a major obstacle to not getting the two economic entities getting much closer together. So that's the challenge. But the challenge also come from that perception European Union offered towards the, both the Chinese policymakers but also for the Chinese public elite as well. Uh, sorry, the Chinese public as well. The Chinese public opinion seems to have a very positive about the European Union, but then somehow they couldn't understand why the European Union always prefer to lecturing on China on certain subjects, such as human rights and on individual freedom. So that sense of um, a distance really putting the two sides apart. And as we all know, the politics is really the art of visible. So, so as to for Chinese, um, China's relationship with any great powers, there's a wish and there's also reality. So there's really a distance to travel regarding that from that wish to reality. And having said all of that, um, so to nurture a partnership between Brussels and Beijing, between Beijing and the various national capitals, and perhaps what European Union really have to do is to balance that sense of normative division vis-a-vis economic reality and also how much realistically European Union is able to change China's political system. So I ended in here, and much look forward to your comments and questions.
5: Okay. um, Good evening, everybody. Um, I feel like a little bit of an outsider this evening, because I'm by no means a China specialist. Uh, But what my work uh, does focus on is thinking about the the UK economy and uh, the importance of trade from the UK perspective. Uh, So what I thought I'd talk about briefly this evening is uh, the importance of trade with China uh, for the UK and kind of what role trade with China might play in potentially a a post-Brexit world. Um, And I I think there's a consensus among the panellists this evening that in five minutes one can make at most three points so I want to use my time just to show you three uh, pictures, which I think illustrate the importance of this relationship quite well. Um, so what we've got here on, the, on, on this first graph is just showing how the uh, volume of trade between the U.K. and China has evolved over the past 20 years. Okay? So you've got the U.K. imports from China in red and U.K. exports to China in blue, and, you know, what, what we see here really is, you know, it's the rise of, of China. China joined the World Trade Organization in, in in 2001 here. And since then there has really been this, you know, China has become the world's export superpower. And there's been this explosive growth in the amount of trade that the, that the UK and, and, you know, most other developed countries do with China. So we see, you know, we see a rapid rise. Today the UK imports about 45 billion pounds worth of goods and services from China every year. Um, to give a little bit of context, that's about 2% of UK GDP. Right? So it's not a, it's not a huge number, but it's not a complete it's, it's it's a substantial amount. The other thing obviously you can see here is that imports are much higher than than exports. The the UK runs a substantial bilateral trade deficit uh with China. So we're much more exposed to imports from China than, you know, than UK firms have successfully managed to export to China. And this, you know, this, this rise of China, this growth in trade we see here has stirred a lot of interest in, you know, what are the effects of this increasing trade on, you know, on the UK economy and UK workers, now, there's a lot of evidence from the U.S. in particular that you know, workers that specialised in industries that have faced a lot of competition from China and regions kind of where a lot of people worked in these industries facing big import competition have, have suffered. There have been kind of genuine losses to the people that have had to compete with this increase in trade with China. The U.K. picture is a little bit different in that you know, there certainly have been some industries that have lost out and that have declined as, as imports from China has grown. But overall, the picture is much more benign in the UK and in, in Europe generally than it is in the, the US. And the effects are generally you know, pretty, pretty small and don't really explain a large part of what's happened to wages in the UK over the past 10 or, or 15 years. So that's, the, that's the kind of first picture, big explosion in trade with China. Now, how important is China overall in UK trade? Well, if we count the EU as, as one block, then China is the UK's third biggest trade partner. So, you know, about half of UK trade is with the EU, about 15% is with the US, and then the next biggest player is uh, China, which currently accounts for around 5% of UK trade, right? Now, that's up from 1% in 1999, so you can see China's becoming you know, much more important as a share of UK trade. What does this mean in the Brexit context? well if we 're thinking about you know who the u k might want to do trade deals with after it leaves the eu you know and clearly part of the reason the you know current brexit deal has been designed the way it does is because of a belief in government that the u k should you know seek at, seek at becoming a more global player and striking new free trade agreements well the u s is the is the big prize, but then the next most important trading partner for the u k is is China so the question of you know whether the UK and China can reach a free trade agreement, what that might cover, how extensive it would, would be, what kind of agreement on, you know, sort of measures to reduce regulatory barriers between the two economies. That's likely to become an important kind of question in UK trade policy in the next five to, five to ten years. You know, given that the, re, you know, the rate at which trade with China is growing, it's also, you know, this 5% number is going to go up over time. China is only going to become more important as a trade partner, and the more important it becomes, the more important it is going to be for the UK to see, you know, is there are there any possibilities for doing a trade deal with China? And then the final picture I wanted to, to show you, you know, just to say a little bit more about you know, what does this trade between the UK and China actually um, consist of. And the chart here just splits up into you know very simply into is it goods or is it services? Right, and what you can see is that the vast majority of the UK's trade with China is, is goods, not services. Right? And this is a little unusual for the UK, because what the UK does essentially in world trade is it exports services to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, on aggregate, half of UK trade is in services. Right? So for the world as a whole, we'd expect these bars to be about of an equal height. But you can see, in fact, the UK is doing very little services trade with China. And you can kind of view this in two ways. On the one hand, you could see it as an opportunity. Maybe with trading, there's far less services trade than you might expect looking at other countries, in which case potentially there is the opportunity for rapid growth in services trade if we can reach an advantageous free trade deal. But there's also a kind of a slightly more pessimistic way of looking at this fact, which is that services trade in particular tends to rely on there being kind of similar systems of regulation in place in both trading partners to facilitate businesses being able to operate in different environments. So you can see this kind of lack of services trade potential is indicating just how how different the operating environments are in, in the UK and in China. And that suggests you know, that there are potentially you know, important barriers for UK companies that want to do business in China. And it's not totally clear how easy it will be to break those down. Outside of the EU's single market, free trade agreements typically do very little to promote trade in services. So one you know, important question going forward is going to be you know, what what scope is there for the UK and China to trade more, particularly in in services, and can we identify particular sectors or particular areas where there would be mutually beneficial regulatory changes that would enable this trade to expand? Um, so that's just sort of a, a kind of a few a few facts to get us going with, and I'll I'll stop there. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, before we open up uh, the discussion from you, I, I would like to formulate a few questions uh, for the panel here. Uh, issues that I, I think we may want to pursue a little further. Um, one has to do with the nature of the the, the relations. Um, Robert, you, you, you have said that uh, We should look for more um, rule-based approaches, right? But as you know, this is now on the decline. I mean, um, the pressure everywhere is to have bilateral agreements. So wouldn't it be better than for the EU to to look for bilateral agreements with China, uh, like we have now with other countries? also as a a strategy to isolate the United States. And and, um, today the the U.S. is following a protectionist approach and trying to protect itself vis-a-vis China. But if the EU looks for openness with China, then it's actually a way to isolate the United States and to make the U.S., Pay for protectionism because it, in fact, then becomes a nation that fights the rest of the world, and and then the U.S. is relatively small, and so wouldn't the the best strategy then be trying to come to an arrangement with China as a geopolitical answer to to the U.S. And I would like also the question to, to ask to the other members of the panel whether that is sensible, especially <clears throat> to you, because you, you have been looking at the geopolitical uh, implications.
2: Yeah. <clears throat>
1: yes, you go first. Then. <laughs>
2: right. um, I think the first point to clarify, perhaps, is that the EU shares many of the concerns of the US with regard to the trade war, but the EU is uh, not aligned with the US with regard to the measures the US has been taking. So the EU doesn't believe that this is the right way forward. Um, now to the bilateral question, um, the EU is actually currently negotiating an investment agreement with China. It's very close to um, to conclusion. It's a bilateral investment treaty, but it's not a classic bilateral investment treaty, which only deals with investment protection and ISDS mechanisms. But it actually also deals with investment liberalisation and market access. So if I was talking about opportunities that EU that the EU could basically try to present itself as an alternative to the U.S., I was thinking of now China needs access even more to the European economy, and therefore Europe can, in the context of those negotiations, actually get an even better deal in terms of market access to fairly closed sectors in China, such as financial services, utilities, infrastructure. I think this is definitely on the way, but, I mean, bilateralism and multilateralism have always been, uh, over the last 20 years, been complementary, so I think the EU should probably has to go forward with this strategy, have a bilateral deal with China, but also strengthen the WTO, because that's mm-hmm. uh, the bedrock bad of, of the system, basically.
3: Yeah, today I agree with these uh, uh, yeah, points that uh, I think both bilateral uh, yeah, and also multilateral, uh, because actually after the stagnation of Doha round, uh, I think we, 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 as economics we always call this a spaghetti ball, yeah mm-hmm. uh, so bilateral uh, agreement uh, yeah when we have a look of the use case yeah you have bilateral agreements with uh, Canada, uh, with uh, Singapore, with uh, Japan, with uh, South Korea and uh, at the other side, I think also from Chinese perspective I uh, will support this multilateral uh, issue that's I mean uh, WTO. Yeah, and I think both sides—I mean, EU and China—has share uh, common value in the, in the fields of reform of uh, WTO, and also when people are talking about Belt and Road Initiative, uh, actually that's like a have demonstrated, it's uh, bilateral and also multilateral. Yeah, because uh, actually we have uh, totally 17 uh, European uh, member states. Uh, uh, participate this AIIB Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and uh, also uh, uh, I think we have uh, this platform at the EU-China level this uh, uh, connectivity platform and also the synergy between AIIB and EBRD that's uh, one side the other side is uh, uh, cooperation with um, member states of uh, EU uh, so I totally agree with this, uh, yeah, mixture form.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Yu.
4: Yeah, um, just um, on the decoupling and U.S.-China trade war, I mean, what I felt so far is, seems to be both Beijing and Washington are now uh, waiting um, to carefully look into who is going to be Trump's replacement, if there's any replacement. And secondly, obviously, what Donald Trump has done is try to run a containment-along strategy towards China. But in the past 18 months or so during the trade war, I hardly see the European Union seems to be sided with Donald Trump because at the end of the day, even though European Union is alliances with the United States, but it's really this alliance agreed with that sense of containment along strategy to go after China. If they agree to do so, and that would be a disaster for European Union economy, I would say. And secondly, um, regarding the... Um, European investment um, and also WTO discussions and various others on European Commission. It seems to be European Union is have that obsessions on rules. And whereas the Chinese have that obsessions on executive order. So I just wonder how the two would try to square that irreconcilable circle. On the one hand, rely on the rule of law, whereas on the other hand, you're relying on executive order.
3: From Chinese perspective, people also condemn very much about this so-called ABC strategy. Anyone but China so when people when people talking about these uh, uh, TTIP mm-hmm. and also TPP or uh, TISA that's the case mm-hmm. that's I think also one of uh, the proposal why yeah people from China initiate this uh, pattern Road initiative yeah at the, no doubt we have also domestic uh, needs yeah so to, to absorb more over capacity to, to develop so, western regions so this kind of things yeah I think
1: Maybe I want to yeah, make correct. you work a little bit also, mm-hmm. Thomas. <laughs> um, uh, you, 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 you mentioned that um, there might be opportunities for the UK in services, right? Because UK, the UK has, is a traditional and a very strong um, exporter of services and, and, and to use that in its relation with, with China. But don't you think that the UK now has lost most of the leverage it, could have had if it had stayed in, in the European Union, right? Obviously, it could have done that within the context of the European Union and have much more leverage than it will have outside the European Union, where it will be considered to be a small country relative to, to China. So how do you feel about this?
5: Yeah, no, I, I would basically entirely agree with that. I think, you know, one thing, one thing anyone who studies trade negotiations quickly learns is that you know, size uh, size determines your power in trade negotiations and it typically determines how good a deal you get. So, I mean, there's been this discussion within the UK is, you know, do we benefit from being sort of more nimble and flexible as our own player in trade negotiations or would it be better to retain kind of, be, you know, a small part of the, this big block, um, the the EU, including, you know, government policies that we are better off outside the EU, but I think most of the evidence would suggest that our negotiating clout would be stronger as a, as, as a member of the EU. You know, I think that's you know, particularly the case if we think about you know, doing a deal, say, with the, the, the United States, where the UK is so kind of desperate for a deal with the US that it's potentially going to sign up to whatever terms are put in front of it. Um, China, obviously, traditionally has been less of a kind of player in the market for bilateral FTA. So I think there's a little bit more uncertainty around kind of you know what the circumstances China might do a deal with either the UK or the EU. Uh, but you know, the UK is going to have to get used to life as a as a small uh, fish.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think uh, actually yeah, when people are talking about financial cooperation between China and uh, UK, especially London, uh, I actually collect quite a lot of these kind of points. Uh, we have this initiative Shanghai London stock connect. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, China-UK strategic plan for financial services. Uh, and also, no doubt, London became the first biggest uh, offshore centre of RMB mm-hmm. outside of uh, Asia. And quite a lot of, you know, I, I, I mean, uh, yeah, bond was issued here you know, in London. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So, relative comparative, uh, uh, comparative advantage yeah, I think uh, UK has. Yeah, yeah, just one
4: quick line. I mean, I found incredibly confusing on UK's China policy because, I mean, in the last, in the last four years, on the one hand, we have got an era, and suddenly all went quiet. <laughs> it seems to be this government to have a four different departments unable to speak one voice on what stance they are taking in China. On the one hand, you have foreign office and the Modi somehow they want the shipping towards South China Sea. And then on the other hand, you have international trade uh, department desperately trying to get remember uh, internationalization and London-Shanghai Stock Exchange. So this a sense of confusion. I'm hoping the new government, if we are having a new government in the future, to give some clarity to Beijing, and then that perhaps is the beginning of the UK-China free trade deal.
1: And you think Boris will do that?
4: Um, <laughs> That's a subject for another discussion.
1: But certainly that not in Boris Johnson's company. Will not touch upon that issue. Yeah. Okay, I think it's time to open up uh, the discussion. The questions uh, from you. Um, who, and if you have a question, please present yourself, and then uh, formulate your question. Yes, Florian. Yeah.
6: Thank you very much. My name is Florian Muller. I'm a student of the new program, Global Political Economy of China and Europe. And I've been working on especially the German-China trade relationship in the past two years. And something I always wondered was, like, in Germany there is a big fear um, against Chinese companies when it comes to takeovers of strategic sectors, let's say the car companies and so on. And there is the Chinese um, strategy, China 2025, which defines, for example, the the automotive sector as one of the sectors where China wants to become the leading power in the world. And so my question would be, when a Chinese company approaches a German company for the takeover in the automotive sector, is it because the government wants the company to take over the, the German company, Or is it because the company itself, the Chinese company itself, has this strategic interest in taking over a German company? So basically, the question is are Chinese companies controlled by the state, or do they operate more or less on on capitalistic terms?
3: I suppose you have uh, yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Thank
3: you. Actually, I express my own view, it's not a full time view. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, I think the merge of uh, a German robotic uh, factory, that's a cool car, uh, attracted more interest, and also that leads to the so called setting up this uh, these investment uh, schooling. Uh, regime not only at the level of uh, Germany but also at the EU level. Uh, I think the competition is there. Uh, that means if you have a look of the four uh, decades uh, upgrading of Chinese manufacturing, that's quite obvious. Yeah, that's also foreign invest uh, spillover effects of uh, uh, foreign investment. And uh, uh, here I always say, yeah, to to, to answer your question, yeah, it is it's manipulated by the state. Uh, Totally not, yeah. If you look, have a look at this kind of uh, wave of outwards uh, FDI, yeah, which uh, actually started from 2012, that's more driven by private enterprises. So I have the figures, the private enterprises account uh, about 90% of the total amount of enterprises, uh, about 80% employment, about 70% innovation, about 50% tax revenue. Uh, so especially with this uh, merge of KUKA, that's totally private uh, enterprises. And other points I want to mention is, uh, although there is uh, competition, yeah, but we have more cooperation. Yeah. If you have a look of a visit of uh, America to Beijing, that's quite obvious uh, with a full uh, big delegation and also, I think learn from each other not only in this uh, sp- uh, special, specific, concrete case, but also if you have a look of this uh, Made in China 2025, which has already mentioned by uh, quite several times by colleagues, we have all, all also nowadays uh, this uh, German National Industry Strategy 2030. Yeah, actually, I know that uh, uh, within Germany, itse- Germany itself, uh, there is quite a debate about this. Yeah, even the, the one of the, actually, the four of these five wise, yeah, four uh, uh, <laughs> wise people, uh, which is a consultant for for the German cabinet, was against this because I read the the, the article they written or published in uh, Frankfurt Argument. Yeah, so. Uh, even besides this, yeah, uh, when we have a look of the, I mean, the case of uh, learning from each other, yeah, uh, in China we have this elite university project that's uh, we call this as 985 or 211, but in Germany we have this elite university project, yeah. So for me that's quite good. Yeah, it's a fair competition. We can learn from each other and. Uh, yeah, the, the progress we have had, especially the upgrading of manufacturing in the last four decades, that's based on the strength, hardworking, and also the speed over of this kind of investment. And also, I've already mentioned, if you have a look of this D intensity, nowadays in China, it's account for 2.19%. If we have an average level of D intensity of EU as a whole, it's 2% which is uh, 3% is year of 2020 target, yeah? But I think, yeah, that's uh, actually, for me, it's uh, normal things if you have a look, or or if you compare uh, actually the upgrading or the rising of uh, uh, Japan or South Korea in 1960s or 70s or 80s, that's the normal case. If we have a look of a catch-up process of Germany to uh, UK, that's also the case.
1: Um, maybe in the back there, yeah, the lady in the back.
7: Thank you very much for um, your uh, interesting insights. I'm actually from another um, double degree with China, the LSE PKU degree, uh, degree in international affairs. Um, so, my question is more about Sino European environmental governance. So I was wondering, given that the U.S. stepped back from the Paris Agreement, the EU and China become the leading roles in the UNFCCC negotiations. And for China, and or especially for the uh, Communist Party in China, tackling environmental issues in China is essential for the legitimacy of the party. There have been uh, Sino-European projects already a lot in the energy sector, and there's a lot of trade in renewable energy technologies. So I was wondering uh, what kind of new developments do you see on that side? And what kind of opportunities do you see now that the U.S. is stepping back from these positions for a stronger um, cooperation on Chinese-European environmental governance? Thank you.
1: Who would like to take up this question? (laughs)
4: Let me me take this one because I wrote my PhD on this back to five years ago Oh, Oh, Uh, that's (laughs) (laughs) great I think I'm quite out of date on this but the principle remains the same Um, I think the two sides still have much agreement to work together on certain things, I mean, the basis of cooperation will not change, because it's not just about cooperation, it's out of necessity. I mean, you mentioned clearly, environmental issues, tackling environmental issues, is one of the key elements to justify whether the party is legitimate to govern. So I think so far Xi Jinping delivered quite well on that. Um, then of course you have various um, initiatives being set up, but I think there's also a sticking point between the two sides um, on the climate change, because of course, the European Union is now trying to persuade China to give up the status of a developing country. So by being a developing country, of course, regarding carbon emission, you have a much different standard compared with if you are a developed country. So I wonder how long on this battle regarding the status of China and which club it belongs to, will be, have that kind of debate. So I think the direction of travel in the future is, yes, the cooperation will still going to be there, but in principle, between Beijing and Brussels, there's still going to be a longer debate of the status of China within the international corp, um, climate change and which member of club China belongs to. Another business opportunity, um, I think carbon trading, would be the areas you've been looking to because with all uncertainty going on, the carbon price has been rock bottom. So if any... Chinese or European companies are interested in that, uh, that subject, and uh, that would be really the money-making machine in the future. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, in, in, this, in this connection, if I may pursue this, uh, as you know, um, the European uh, Commission has um, made proposals to, to have compensatory import tariffs that would correct for um, the existence of, of um, CO2 emission in other countries, right? And. Um, I, It's unclear whether this will ever become something practical, but how how do you feel? Because that would possibly hit China um, and and could be used by the European Union to force China or other countries to go forward into tighter um, controls on CO2 emissions.
8: Any view on this? I
5: mean, so I guess... I mean, traditionally within trade policy and the, the WTO, there has been a lot of scepticism about the this kind of issue linkage where you use trade policy to try and achieve objectives in other areas. In the 90s, the big debate was whether you could kind of enforce uh, labour rights or human rights by writing them into to to, to trade deals. And there was... Kind of, it, it didn't really... It really happen. So the kind of, the, the traditional view is very much that, this is, that trade policy is not the right place to do this. That said, given the, the scale of the climate crisis and the kind of global coordination problem in coming to some kind of a, a solution, I can see that, you, you know, you can make a case for why, you know, if trade policy is one area where we can make changes maybe this is, you know, enough of a crisis that we think these kind of unusual policies should be introduced. So I think it's, it's an idea at this stage. It's going to face a lot of kind of pushback from the trade community, but I think it's one that's worth, you know, exploring and thinking about in more detail.
2: Uh, I would totally agree uh, with what you said. I mean, I have come across this a couple of times in my... I always heard about it as green protectionism. That's basically the term that many people in the trade crowd use because they, everybody at least a couple of years ago, was quite worried that these kind of measures would be used to just engage in hidden protections. And you say it's about the environment, but actually you're just uh, closing down your economy uh, whenever it's suitable, basically. So, But let's see what, what happens. now.
1: Yeah, but I think there is a strong case to be made because it's about uh, market failures, right? Uh, the yeah. fact that... Um, some countries do not impose, for example, CO2 taxes and therefore do not allow correct prices um, to emerge. And then if you, in in Europe, do it, um, you create a big problem, except if you correct for that. But I I take your point that when you want to practice this, uh, you immediately hit problems of, of uh, protectionism and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps
2: one last point on what you said. I think this whole I mean the, at least in my domain there's quite some research uh, about the impact of labor rights on trade patterns and also like compliance with uh, labor rights in, in other countries outside of the developed world so to say uh, and uh, more and more people uh, acknowledge that there is actually a positive impact uh, in certain sectors and certain types of agreements actually so it may be working. Uh, if you okay
1: good next question. Maybe we go up there. Uh, I see, yeah. The the gentleman there. No, wait, wait, wait. You will get a microphone.
8: Thank you. Thank you for the sharing. Um, I'm going to be a bit provocative. And my question is, um, you talk as if the EU is a single entity. I think in many ways it is. Um, But the problem is the EU does not have a unified trade policy. It does not have a unified foreign policy. Sorry, if if I can interrupt. If I were China, China, you know, I would just, you know, divide and rule, and I think that is basically what we are seeing. Uh, Different countries are competing for China's favours. So, so my question, first of all, is, you know, it's it's kind of like an an unequal partnership. What what leverage does the EU have uh, when when it when it's dealing with China? And second is. Given the situation, doesn't the EU want to free ride on some of the um, Trump efforts, you know, on issues that EU also have, have issues with China, like, you know, intellectual property protection? So I want to get your views on, on these two issues.
2: Yeah. Maybe Robert, I, you yeah, guys, I'm I, sorry, but I really yeah. want to. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just to counter uh, this argument, the European Union uh, actually has a common commercial policy, which is completely unified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is no uh, possibility for Germany, as for instance Mr. Trump had to learn uh, over the last couple of years, to negotiate a bilateral deal with the US. It's just not possible, and no member state engages directly in bilateral trade negotiations with any other third country. So. Yeah. This is really one of the domains where the EU is highly cohesive and uh, very effective in what it's doing. So what is the leverage of the EU? Uh, The EU is a very big economy, right? Uh, Obviously, with the UK dropping out now, uh, it's significantly uh, shrinking. But uh, still, it's a consumer market of 440 uh, million uh, quite rich uh, people, right, after Brexit. So this is a big, big leverage that it has. Unfortunately, so to say, for the EU, it's a fairly open economy. So in that sense, it has kind of traded away already to some extent its its bargaining chips over the last couple of decades. But uh, still, um, there are many ways, uh, such as the FDI screening mechanism, which was mentioned many times, how the EU can... To get a good deal basically and, and it is very effective so I would really disagree with you there <laughs>
1: yeah if there is one thing we can say about the EU that is as a trade agent and a trade policy it is one of the big nations in the world right together with the US China and the EU and in fact you see it also in the regulatory environment the Brussels effect is the fact that in many countries now companies take over the, the, the EU regulations without us telling them you have to do it, they know that if they want to be successful, they will have to go in that direction. So I think uh, that is quite a, a, a strong position that we have. Okay. <laughs> Let's another student there. Yeah, please. <laughs>
9: Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the insightful presentations and discussions and Wu Zetau. i come undergraduate from Fudan University. I'm so excited to be here in this program spot. Uh, So my question has a special focus on CEE, which is Central and Eastern Europe given during the past two years or three years, we see China has been trying so hard to strengthen its ties with CEE, not just economically, but politically and and culturally. But we also see the EU has also been trying so hard to keep relevant with CEE issues and affairs. So my question is, are China and EU in a strategic competition to keep... Like, to keep the ties with CEE, or are they going to cooperate in the future? I don't know if I make this question so clear. If, yeah, yeah. if I didn't, just ask me to repeat it. Thank uh-huh. you.
3: Yeah, I think uh, when we're talking about the cooperation in <coughs> China and uh, EU, that's, in my view, is, uh, three layers. Uh, China-EU, China member states, and also China with uh, sub-regional Uh, Blocks like uh, you have mentioned, uh, CEC countries, and also maybe China with Nordic countries. Yeah, so that's uh, yeah, that exists. And also, uh, I think, uh, like uh, we have already discussed, that's a multi-layer cooperation. So I don't think that there is a uh, competition uh, with this. Yeah. So so. as far as I know, uh, next year we will have uh, seven, two, uh, 27 plus one. So that, that's actually the initiative of, of uh, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel when uh, uh, President Xi Jinping visits Paris. And uh, so we will uh, look forward to see that uh, uh, 27 plus one. So, so that's what I want to say is that's a multi-layer cooperation. Yeah? So that's all the corporations.
4: Um, just to adding one line. I mean, on 17 plus one now, um, it's, you need to judge exactly what are those 17 different members wanted from China. So whatever they wanted from Croatia may be very different from what they wanted from Poland or Hungary. I mean, for this very moment, let's be frank, I mean, Poland by no way are interested in cooperating with China anymore, And but countries like Hungary, for example, still prefer to treat China as an important partner. So I think somehow this 17 plus one, have given those 17 countries some kind of choices. You know, you can either choose Brussels or you can choose China or whatever you want to choose. So it's a, I wouldn't consider it as being competition, but it's really, you know, you, have, you can do the multiple choices question. Whatever is really good for the national interest of that individual member state.
3: Yeah, in, in order to show that uh, China do not want to divide the EU itself and if we, uh, you can see that uh, every time when we have these uh, 16 plus 1, that now 70 plus 1, the uh, Chinese side will also invite uh, commission and also the other member states to participate to this uh, uh, summit, I think. Yeah.
1: Okay. <clears throat>
8: yeah.
1: A gentleman there.
9: Thank you. I am an economics and politics A-level student. My question is: Can you really trust China with like past history with violations of like intellectual property, or in the sense that their currency manipulation a bit earlier, like a few months earlier, or like with their ties with certain companies such as Huawei? Can you
1: hold up, yeah, microphone closer.
9: Do <clears throat> oh, you Yeah. Uh, so we we'll be the whole thing. Can uh, Europe really trust China despite like the lack of like protection for intellectual property or their currency manipulation or their ties with certain companies?
1: Okay. Who wants to take this? Property rights, currency manipulation?
3: <clears throat> now, actually, I have already mentioned in my PowerPoint that uh, uh, legally, we have this very perfect uh, IPR protection uh, framework. And for implementation, I would not say that now, nowadays we have our already very perfect situation, but the progress is there. And so in this sense, I would say that to more strong implementation of IPR protection is not only the pressure from outside, but more the internal demand yeah, uh, you can see that when in Chinese, especially private enterprises, when they want, want to more these kind of innovations, they, they also, yeah, no doubt, they want to protect themselves. Yeah? So that's actually our common sense nowadays in Chinese society.
1: Is China a currency manipulator?
3: <laughs> it's, it's quite obvious now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's obvious. Well, you say it's obvious. No. Not. Not. Yes. Oh, yes. oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, let me turn the lady
4: there. Yeah.
7: Hi, my name is Lara. First of all, many thanks. It was a very insightful talk. Um, I'm right now in my third year of social policy and government. And I just have uh, one very brief question. So you identified the, the difference in normative values as one of the key obstacles in order to further
4: increase cooperation. So I was just wondering do you have like any practical approach or any solution of how we can overcome this um, yeah, difference in normative values?
2: Dual degrees? <laughs> okay.
4: Well, certainly, joint degree as this mm. is one of the very helpful practical solution. <laughs> But secondly, I think perhaps Europeans should really put themselves in the shoes of the Chinese and considering themselves why the Chinese population actually trusts the Chinese Communist Party. Because what I felt is it seems to be in the Western media and the Western pundit have that assertion or that assumption that one day maybe the Chinese population are deeply unhappy about the regime and therefore they will go against the regime. But however, I have to say... For your generation or my generation, many of us actually experience a staggering economic success of China's economic model. So for those youngsters felt the Communist Party gave them a sense of hope and why should they really asking for regime change? So if the European Union or whoever, you know, the Western establishment, continues to corner those Chinese younger generation to talk about that sense of um, whatever the different values, and then perhaps what you receive it's a sense of very strong backlash from the Chinese millennials. And I'm afraid, after 30 years, these are going to be the people who are the leaders of China. And then that's the part of a generation really the rest of the world, and especially the West will have to manage. I think really the key challenge for the West is not to accommodate China, and it's not to contend China, but how to manage a regime which is so different from what we have experienced after that so-called the end of the Cold War moment.
1: Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Please. Yes. Oh. Next one for you. No, it's, it's okay. Yes, yes. You take it. Yeah, oh, thank you. And then we thank you. have
9: another candidate. Um, I'm doing a Masters at King's in China and globalization. Um, the UK is currently
2: the largest receiver of OFDI in European countries. So the first part of my question is why would China put that at stake if Brexit does go through? And you spoke of the EU as a very unified unit, which it is on a trading basis. Security and foreign policy-wise, it's not. They can do as they wish for the BRI and security issues. So I just want to see how I can reconcile that as the China-UK post-Brexit relationship will be disastrous.
1: Okay, That's a natural question for you. <laughs> yeah, well, so, I mean,
5: on the, on the FDI question, at least, certainly I think the general expectation is that Brexit will make the UK a much less attractive destination for FDI coming from places like China, simply because, you know, if you look a lot of, particularly if you look at the Japanese companies, they use the UK as a base to serve the whole European market, and that's no longer going to be uh, possible. We've already seen a 10% fall in new FDI projects coming into the UK since the Brexit referendum. So I think your, your concern in that area is, you know, is valid and there seems to be some evidence that it's already happening. I will, I will leave the security question to others who are better placed to speak about it than I am.
1: Okay. Yes, there was a question here. No, no. Sorry, I, I had promised. Uh, this
10: <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you everyone. Um, I'm Gabriele Favaroa, I'm from the double degree program. And I was just wondering, like, according to the previous um, question about EU policy, EU trade policy, um, how can you explain Italy's position and support in in an explicit explicit way, like like last March, I guess, uh, and supporting the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and the Brussels reaction to this explicit way? Uh, of Of taking this position, because it could be from one end, like um, as the dr u g said, a kind of position that creates um, a sentiment of distance. In in people, uh, for example, in Italy, it created a sense of distance because it uh, it created a kind of uh, sentiment of fear, you know. So, how can you explain Russell's reaction and this position from Italy in an explicit way, given the fact that uh, 17 countries, as we said, uh, take part to the AIIB? Thank you. Okay.
1: Who wants to take that up?
4: Sure. Okay. Sure. I take that question. Um, it's a fair comment on this. Actually, that politician who single-handedly initiated BRI um, endorsement or the uh, Memorandum of Understanding came to office in November last year. And he explained to me the most important trade between Italy and China is all about selling oranges and olives. But of course, it's far more complex than that. Um, I'm just thinking the shape of your country is an elongated country, and that country you do need to have some serious upgrade on infrastructures. So, obviously, by joining the the BRI initiative is, um, you know, Bottom Road is a quite obvious choice. But on the other hand, I think the danger in here is also to do with your own government. May I ask you how long your government will last? And especially in the last 40 years or 30 years, Italy has more than 18 different prime ministers. And can you actually, if Italy wants to be provided as being a credible international player, so whatever has been agreed in this current Lega government, would that be really followed by the next generation, next prime minister? So the gender is not on China's side. The gender, I think, is really on the Italy side to keep the promise.
1: Sometimes having many... Prime ministers is a sign of stability.
3: <laughs> 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 um.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. Chu, Would you like to say something about this, or you? Yeah,
3: no, I think you have already answered.
1: Then this. we go to the next question. Um. <laughs> yeah.
11: Mm thank you for all the beautiful speech that you, you've given. I'm uh, also a student uh, from I uh, have his undergraduate certificate from the university uh, and now also in double degree and uh, I have a question more for a very micro area about the city to city relationship because uh, you know like uh, as Mr. D- uh, Ding Chun has men- uh, mentioned uh, several kind of uh, cooperation like three dimensional cooperation but there's another kind of cooperation a very micro area which is city to city because um, nowadays in China many enterprises just, uh, and uh, you know some kind of city members just uh, go directly to China and uh, uh, negotiate with China uh, local government. Uh, what do you think of this kind of city to city uh, relationship because I once uh, worked as an internship in the foreign affairs office of uh, local Chinese uh, government and I find so many kind of relationships yeah, mm. and some uh, on the other hand, some kind of city would be just hostile to uh, China once they changed uh, a leader. For example, the Prague has um, the the leader of Prague has been very hostile to China. Yeah.
1: So is, is that
3: a particular question you you formulate, or what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, actually between China and you have three. Uh, so called three pillar, uh the high level uh, political talk uh, dialogue and then economic dialogue and then the third is uh, people to people high level people to people uh, dialogue I think maybe uh, if you uh, say this uh, city to city yeah, that's maybe belongs to this category uh, I think the proposal for this is to promote uh, the relationship especially people to people yeah yeah Is this uh, the question you want to raise?
1: Okay, good. Um, Given the time, maybe two more questions. The lady
5: there, and then you.
7: Um, Hi, I just want to further... uh, I'm a student from King's College London. I study in uh, European Studies. And I just want to further the question on the normative division. Uh, Since that we have been talking a lot about the trade war today, but for most of the people in Asia, such as Hong Kong and Taiwan, are experienced their, their were in value with mainland China. So my question is, uh, what, from the point of view from the European Union, who has positioned themselves as a protection for liberal value, uh, uh, what would you think the case in Hong Kong and the situation with, with Taiwan would influence the EU and China relationship in the future? Thank you.
1: Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not sure we are we expert on Hong Kong here. <laughs> um, th- this is a this is a panel on on uh, trade and political economy of trade, and these are scholars that have uh, particular um, knowledge about trade, and I'm not sure we we want to go into discussion of Hong Kong because we have no particular. Expertise here, and and there might be other occasions where we can discuss Hong
2: Kong issues, except if you want to. I I would just say, like, to be frank, happens in Hong Kong, happens in many other parts of the world as well, right? Unfortunately, um, you may say, but um, there's a balancing act, I think, from the European Union side, uh, as with any country, and I think uh, it's a difficult one.
1: Okay. This was a well-balanced answer. <laughs> last question there.:
12: uh, Thank you, Thank you for the wonderful presentation. So um, in the last few years, uh, Chinese nationalism and the, the military force has, I mean, is rising with a dramatic speed. So, and a lot of people I know, a lot of European people, European people I know, they, are, they tend to believe that the, the war between China and the surrounding country is inevitable in the future. So, uh, my question is about because as a Chinese, it's concerned my interests. So, my, my, my question is about how to avoid those war, I mean, those imaginary war in European people's. European peoples mind and peacefully I mean solve the territory disputes with for example like India, uh, Japan and Vietnam. Thank you. Well
1: just a connection with trade uh, but maybe uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, ma- many nations have been waging wars right? I mean um, the US, the European countries have been waging wars uh, all over history And and China is, in fact, one of the countries that has done relatively little there. Maybe it's time to do it. (laughs) Um, But uh, I I doubt that this will be the case. I think we we have to conclude here. I'm I'm very happy that uh, I have been able to chair this meeting where we have had uh, quite insightful ideas about the nature of trade relations between China and Europe. I would all like to invite you wait, 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 to invite you for a drink. I've been briefed about this, that uh, there is a drink, and this is in the atrium gallery um, downstairs in, in the ground floor. It's just out here, right? So you are welcome to continue the discussion there.